Hey everyone, the Property Manager Mastermind Conference 2022 is going on at the Red Rock Resort in Las Vegas, Nevada. Go to pmmcon.com to learn more and sign up. Welcome to the Property Management Mastermind Show with your host, Brad Larson. Brad owns one of the fastest growing property management companies in San Antonio, Texas. This podcast is for property managers by property managers. You'll hear from industry leading professionals on best practices, new ideas, success stories, and lessons learned. This is your opportunity to learn about the latest industry buzz surrounding property management, as well as tips and strategies to improve your business. Property Meld is a smart maintenance coordination solution proven to turn maintenance headaches into profitability. Our maintenance coordination hub connects all property management companies' key players in one location, providing maintenance oversight and efficiency to property management maintenance teams. Our solution streamlines communication throughout the coordination process, resulting in the oversight and efficiency property managers need to create a profitable maintenance operation. Property Meld delivers property managers with a positive maintenance experience. Check out more information at propertymeld.com or reach out at info at propertymeld.com. Resident Interface is a comprehensive delinquency management solution for property management companies that serve rental properties with over 500 units located in Florida, Georgia, Maryland, and Texas. Resident Interface offers property owners and managers a financially transformative end-to-end delinquency management experience. We're a single contact responsible for the entire process from late payment to eviction management and final debt collection. And we help increase net operating income through technological innovation, operational transparency, and respectful recovery procedures. Learn more today at residentinterface.com. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Property Manager Mastermind Podcast Show. I am your host, Brad Larson. And today's guest, I don't know if I want to call them special. They might be special because they've been known to lick windows and ride on a short bus now and again, but they are a couple good guys. The industry, Matthew Whitaker and Spencer Sutton with Evernest. And I've had them on the show before and we have all kinds of banter and conversation and I make fun of these two and they make fun of me, but I want to get them on to talk about just what's going on with Evernest, what's going on with the industry, growth, organic acquisitions. I mean, there's just some cool topics that we can touch on. And so without further ado, I want to give them each an opportunity to introduce themselves and say, hey, thanks for coming on the show, guys. Looking forward to a fun conversation. Matthew, go ahead with your intro. Yeah, what's up, everybody? Uh, my name is Matthew Whitaker, and I am the CEO here at Evernest and started Evernest a number of years back. And uh, Evernest is about 6,000 homes under management today, and we're super excited to have made it that far and um, brought on my colleague, Spencer, who is a good friend of mine. He and I were friends. Um, we've both been in the industry for almost 20 years. And so when, um, when we needed a marketing team or a marketing person, um, I went begging Spencer to come work with me. Spencer. What's up everybody. Spencer Sutton here. Thanks, Matthew and Brad. Yeah. Um, Matt, I remember Matthew and I, uh, we met at a restaurant and we were just talking about, I, I could see he desperately needed help with marketing. Like he was struggling. And so I said, man, let me help you out. I was actually thinking about doing this on the side for you. And you were like, Hey, let me tell you about this crazy vision I have to get to 25,000 properties. And so that piqued my interest. And, uh, I joined the team just a few, few, I think a few weeks later into yeah, 2014. We were, 
you were telling me how garbage my marketing was and I was uh, how, sure. how important you were and all that was part of the negotiation to <laughs> and, negotiate yeah. this exorbitant salary to come work with us. Well, the great thing is Matthew was like, Hey, I want you to come and build this enormous marketing team at, at Evernest and just, and I got there and he was like, really, it's just going to be you for the first, you know, 10 years. And then what then I meant you is you need, to, and- you need to work like a hundred hours and that's like an enormous marketing team. Okay, oh, by back. the way, I want he, you to do sales. He's, he's back clown. Oh, this wait, sorry. Show, We're on Brad's oh, right, show. Oh, this I is, forgot. Oh, this is I forgot we okay. weren't on our you show. You guys are taking over your show here now. You guys do have a really kick-ass podcast, by the way, 300 to 3000, uh, I think is the name if I'm, if I'm getting it correctly. And I listen to a lot of those episodes and I do think, it's pretty good stuff. And so what I drew out from that is I think there's a, there's a fascination and a desire to learn more about growth, which is why I'm bringing you guys on. It's going to, it's going to be a, you know, start of our conversation. And what, what's really interesting about what you all are doing is you have a big strategic growth model of getting to 25,000 homes, which requires a skill set of acquisitions, meaning you're buying other management companies. In the meantime, at the grassroots level, ground level, you're doing acquisition, excuse me, you're doing organic growth, which is what most people are doing. 90%, 95% of the management companies out there just want to get good at doing organic growth, meaning one at a time, one kitchen table presentation at a time, you know, getting your onesie twosies signed up, having good business procedures in, in, in place as far as your development side, having good people in place. So let's talk kind of both of these sides because on the strategic level, which is probably we should talk about first because, you know, once you have a new acquisition lined up in a new market, okay, done, integrated, check the box. Now we need to grow organically from that new market so we can continue to expand our footprint. So the cart before the horse, let's talk about the strategic side of the big acquisitions you guys are doing. Yeah, I think I think the first like strategic decision is kind of the whole reason we named it 300 to 3000 was what we saw in the marketplace at 300 homes there is like a, is a great like number of homes and and it could be 300 it could be 500 but it, it's kind of like a really efficient property management business you have a great technician who's probably a great property manager who uh, is leading, managing, and directing a, a small group of people, and that person is making a lot of the the decisions regarding everybody's property. But what we saw was, as and this we kind of experienced this in our growth, and it, we kind of relate it back to the E myth is that the great technician it took a different skill set to grow a property management company to three thousand doors and beyond because. It went from being able to manage properties, how well can you manage properties, to more of a leadership question, how can how well can you manage people? So I think the first strategic decision people need to really think about is, am, am I into property management? Like, do I enjoy managing the homes? Or am I more like into growing a business and growing, like scaling a, an actual organization where I'm going to be required to manage more people? And so that to me is like the first strategic decision. And then stuff like acquisition comes after that, because I, I don't necessarily think a property manager needs to grow uh, past 300 to 500. In fact, I think, in, and, and I th- our industry is absolutely changing. I think anybody uh, that doesn't believe that has their head in the sand. But I also believe that the 300 to 500 unit property manager is going to be here to stay. I think that I call them a boutique manager. Um, I think they're going to be here to stay. But I also believe that once you grow past that, you're really going to need to scale your organization 
um, to, to have the benefits of scale instead of um, uh, getting caught in the middle. You don't want to be caught in the middle where um, essentially you don't, you don't know all your owner's names, but you also don't give them the benefit of scale. So let's talk about acquisitions because I know that's what the question was, but I think like strategically question number one is, do you want to grow past that? Spencer, you want to talk about acquisitions? No, I, I think uh, you're the the master of acquisitions, but I I, <laughs> I agree with that. I mean, uh, as a matter of fact, we one of our first episodes in our podcast was making the decision to grow, right? To actually scale your business because it's completely different than uh, maintaining 500 doors. So thinking through the lens of acquisitions, um, like when we first, we, we kind of set this goal to grow to 25,000 houses and we live, uh, Spencer and I both live in the market, Birmingham, uh, uh, Birmingham, Alabama. And, you know, there's like a million, two people here. And so managing 25,000 houses, while there are 25,000 houses in Birmingham, there's not that many more. So we'd have to manage almost hundred percent of them. And so we knew for us to reach our goals, we were going to have to grow outside of Birmingham. And so kind of first step was, um, what, what we experienced was we moved a team member up to Nashville and tried to grow that market organically. And, uh, so Nashville is about two, two and a half hours North of where we sit in Birmingham. And when we tried to do that, we just, we, we spun our wheels. It was really hard. Uh, Spencer hadn't quite built the marketing engine that we have now. And, um, and frankly, we didn't have the resources to build the marketing engine yet. And so when we, when we, when we got up there, we just spun our wheels. We didn't, we didn't land any management agreements. And, um, ironically enough, two or three months and thank God, uh, later we, we're actually approached by a guy who was retiring, who managed about 150 homes. And that was kind of like our, our, we, we had bought a business in Birmingham, but that was kind of our first realization that getting to 150 homes from zero is way easier or way harder than getting to 300 or 500 homes from 150. So each incremental door that you manage is, is easier. So as this thing builds, which is kind of the benefit of scale, as it builds, it builds kind of the flywheel of momentum, if you will. And so what we realized was, hey, if we're going to grow to 25,000 houses to move into a new market, we're going to need to do that through acquisition. What I think we should take the opportunity to do is really dive deep into the life cycle of an acquisition, because a lot of the listeners want to understand where do you get the leads from? So we can talk lead generation. We can talk due diligence. We can talk financing. We can talk all of the employee issues that you have to go through. We can talk integration and we can also talk, you know, how you kind of organically grow after an integration. So going back to it, let's talk specifically on lead generation because uh, to kind of kick this off, I don't think it's necessarily something that is just like, hey, you turn, a, you can flip a switch and start generating leads. You know, you can start, you know, put an ad out or anything like that. It's a campaign of probably five or 10 or 15 different things to include podcasting, like what you're doing, to include getting the word out, uh, to include organic searches, to include business brokers that you're dealing with from all different types of markets. Talk through me just about acquisition lead generation, just for fun, see where we go. Yeah, it's kind of funny because we actually are thinking through this very deeply right now. Um, we've, we're having a lot of internal conversations, so it's probably a good time to be talking about it. So 
the way we've looked at it thus far is yes, uh, the, the more we can get our brand out there, the more awareness we can get in the industry, the more people know Evernest and more people know that we're buying businesses. And, and frankly, doing podcasts like this is one way to do that. Doing our own podcast is another way to do that. Then by virtue of the fact that more people know who we are, then more people are going to contact us about selling their businesses. And so we kind of look through the acquisition world through, uh, through different avatars, right? Like there's different reasons people decide to sell their business. Um, some examples of that are retirement, right? Like somebody may uh, decide, you know, it's time. I don't have children in this business and uh, I need to sell this business and I want to go retire. Another one may be, um, there's another opportunity. So we have a lot of people that come to us and say, you know, I've got this other opportunity I'd really like to pursue. Uh, this business is holding me back from doing that. And I'd love to sell this business and go pursue that other opportunity. So we kind of, to, to like start marketing, you kind of have to think through the lens of why do people sell you businesses? And then to me, you've got to fish where those people are. And so uh, obviously speaking at industry events like NARPM, uh, PMM con, um, any kind of, uh, conference that we can get on the, on the docket and, and share our story or share some, uh, things that we're doing, then it just raises our brand awareness. Um, you know, we've done some active outreach, uh, to, to property managers. And so, uh, it's, it's pretty obvious what that could be. It's like emails and, um, and letters. So, but I, I think at the heart of it, you've got to understand, this also gets into your acquisition strategy because you know there's there's a lot of different actually acquirers in this industry, but everybody's strategy is a little bit different. In other words, the person they want to acquire is different. Um, you know, some people are looking for just operators, so we want you to come be a part of our operation and basically just run your business the same way you've been running it, and we'll we'll put our brand on it. Some people, um, you know, are looking uh, for to to. For, to replace the, the, the operator. And that's like a great way of somebody, and that's us. Uh, we, we love to be able to replace the operator because our business is all about everybody doing it, everybody rowing in the same direction, everybody running the same processes. So, you know, at the end of the day, what, what are you best at? Uh, finding operators, like if you found an operator, we feel like that's, that's an easy way probably to grow. If you can find an excellent operator and you can acquire them and they want to continue to run the business, that's an excellent way to grow. We've just chosen a little bit different path where we say, Hey, we want to train everybody to do it our way. We want everybody running the Evernest model, everybody doing it the Evernest way. And so that, that creates a little bit different avatar of who, who you acquire. So step one is figuring out who you want to acquire and what that looks like. In tandem with lead generation, there is a lot of competition out there right now. So what would be some of your points of difference if you're talking to a business who might be talking to three, four, five different players that are all interested in acquiring that business? So tell, talk me through some of your good points of difference. Yeah, I think hey, before I we, before hey before we do that, Matthew, let me let me point out something that I think is important, and and for people who are looking to potentially just start out and maybe acquire, this is this would be a, a great point for them. I, you know, when I was looking at how Matthew started doing this, you know, we don't we didn't have a NARPM chapter chapter in Birmingham, so he would travel to Nashville's NARPM chapter. He'd travel to Atlanta's uh, and and meet with them, and he just developed relationships over a long period of time. And so I think 
probably the first thing that somebody can do is just develop relationships within the industry, <laughs> get to know people. And, and the more that you share your story, like, Hey, we're looking to acquire. And the more you develop those relationships, I think the first one actually came, uh, well, the first one outside of Birmingham came through just a relationship that Matthew formed over the course of several years. So it wasn't a bunch of marketing at that point. It was just, Hey, this is what we're looking to do. Yeah. If you're getting started, the whole, the whole marketing thing, if you don't have a brand to like market behind, it's really more about hustle. It's about getting out in the, in the house business when you're buying the house. Like I, we, Spencer and I used to be in the house business and we would go show up and try to buy, we'd market heavily and try to buy these houses. And, um, we'd show up and we'd have almost a deal done. And the worst person that could show up would be the neighbor. Uh, because the neighbor would always pay more than we would be willing to pay. And so, you know, by virtue of the fact that you're in the, in a market, you are the, if you're just getting started, you are the neighbor, right? Like me and Spencer are showing up trying to buy a business, but the neighbor is always the one that, uh, ends up getting the deal because it's about relationship. And, it, you know, you can see that those types of conversation, how that conversation could easily go. Well, you know, so-and-so offered me a hundred thousand for my house. Well, I'll pay you 105. So that that's that, you know, that kind of stuff still happens in this industry. So knowing being out and hustling is, uh, is a, you know, is step one of starting to acquire a business. Well, too, also, I would think you got to dive deep into a point of difference of it's not just all about the money sometimes. So if a person is trying to sell you a business with 500 units and they're talking to four five, six other players that are all interested in purchasing, it's not just about the top dollar line. A lot of times it's going to be about the terms. It's going to be about the gut feel. It's going to be about you guys asking the right questions or any purchaser acquirer asking the right questions of, you know, what do you want to do, Mr. And Mrs. Seller? Once you sell the business, what do you want to do? And how do we help you accomplish your goals? If you want to sail into the sunset, great. Let's figure out a way to get you everything right now, cash in the barrel head done. Or are you interested in maybe, you know, expressing interest in, in breaking up that? You want terms. You want to make a little bit of money every year for a few years so you're not killed with a tax burden. I mean, what do you want, Mr. and Mrs. Seller? And so it goes deep into that. I want you to talk more about that because really the points of difference are one at the, at the forefront of the marketing. Okay, cool. You got a cool logo, cool brand, cool story. But then getting down to the nitty gritty of an actual letter of intent and making your points of difference in that regard, uh, I think this is something you want to expand on. Yeah, I'd love to. So the way we look at it is, first of all, we are operators first. Uh, I think one of the things that's unique about us is, um, I, you know, I was a property manager. I mean, the way I got started was just the, the same way a lot of these people that are selling us their business did. It's a uh, cell phone, uh, me riding around in a pickup truck, uh, trying to, you know, land deals myself. I always joke with Spencer. I was the best salesperson we ever had. Uh, Spencer says it's because I just committed to anything to do anything. To get yeah, a deal. Well, he just, he just made up, he just made up his close percentage. <laughs> uh, so, so I think, I think, you know, if, if you look at it through the lens, you know, we're not Silicon Valley, we're not, uh, wall street, you know, we're kind of main street, right? Like we're, we're, we're no different. And just, kind of, uh, you know, when we're talking to owners that are trying to retire, we talk to them about legacy and, and I get along really well with a lot of owners because we've had a lot of shared experiences and a lot of people that are getting out of this business to go do something else. A lot of us got in the business at the same time, you know, during the recession, a lot of us were driven to this business because we were out either buying and selling houses or being an agent for other people. And so at the end of the day, we are operators first. So we're running 
a successful operation. And that's kind of like our first thing. And so one of the things we're going to talk to an owner about is how important it is for us to protect their legacy. So that's, that's incredibly important. The second thing, which I kind of hit on is around systems and processes. A lot of, um, a lot of the businesses out there today are actually different businesses, um, and that are, um, essentially, all under the same brand. So they're running individual businesses and then it's kind of rolled up into the same brand. And that's a, that's a really successful way to build a roll up. Um, what we think though, is to build a long-term brand that has tremendous value that, um, that we're going to run everybody in every market is going to be doing everything almost exactly the same. Now, Denver is a little bit different than Birmingham and that's a little bit different than Nashville. So we run about 90% of our operation the exact same way in every market. And what that does is it allows clients to, uh, invest in multiple markets and essentially whether that's institutional or even retail investors that allows them to, to get a consistent product. So that's one of the things that excites us about buying from what we would call uh, Doug, the dealmaker, which is the person that wants to go do something else or from the, the, the retiring property manager is they allow us to kind of bring it into our ecosystem and run the business the way we want to run the business. Now you're going to have I'm, to elaborate on the difference that you're kind of glazing over is the, where the money is, where the money's coming from. Cause you guys are, you know, I'll let you explain it, but it, your competition out there is you do have wall street. As you mentioned, you do have Silicon Valley and a lot of times they're getting venture capital money and, or some sort of group investment money. And it just seems like the money is flowing in, and they're out there just open checkbook, you know, writing checks to acquire businesses. And there's, there's, you know, four five, six players out there that are doing this. And some of it's, you know, venture capital, some of it's different money, but talk us through kind of where you guys are, are in that perspective, in that spectrum and elaborate on that. Yeah, we've raised a little bit of money and this actually gets into my third point of differentiator. So I'm glad you asked the question. We've raised a little bit of capital. But uh, we've used a lot of bank financing. Um, we use kind of a bunch of different resources to get to the point where we are now uh, at six thousand doors. I, th I, th I think one of the interesting things about us is you know we've made money um, kind of along the way, and so um, you know we've also been able to reinvest the capital that we've made into back into the business. So um, you know that's a that's a point of differentiation too. Is we're we're constantly building this business, but we're constantly also making money. And I think one of the things that's been really important to us is having clear leadership. Um, and, and a clear direction. And one of the, you know, call, Andy Stanley, who's a, who's a guy that runs a church over in Atlanta, he says that I'm not the smartest, but I was here first. And that's the way I look at my role here at Everness. I'm certainly not the smartest here, but I was definitely here first. And so, you know, I, I've, we've kind of set a clear direction and it's very obvious where we're going. And I think it, I think that's a point of differentiation too, which has allowed us to, um, cash flow the business. It's allowed us to grow the business and everybody is in the, in the system is rowing in the same direction. Well, I'm going to interject my two cents here on this one, because I see, the proliferation of all this money coming in. I see these, these big deal makers, they form and they go out and they do a bunch of you know high level acquisitions, but they're also giving away part of their business. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm right. Maybe you can help me expand on that. But in doing so, they're giving away part of their business at a certain point. They can only give away so much of their business in addition to the regular check writing that they're going to be doing, which 
then it equates them to the same level as everybody else after that. That initial push, that initial uh, wave of incoming deals, and then it puts them back to square one and they're competing with everybody. Not so much necessarily on price because they, at that point they can they cannot afford to overpay. You know, they can't pay uh, twice what anybody else would pay just because they want the deals that bad. So they end up going to be like there's a race to um, the integration and operation side and then the feel-good side. So any comments on, on that initial phase of an acquisition with these bigger conglomerates? No, I think the initial phase is a strategy. I think it's a, it's probably a wise strategy given what they want to do. And it makes a lot of sense that, um, that they're trying to go out and acquire some of the bigger names in the business right off the bat. Um, because what it is, is, um, and Spencer, uh, Spencer can help me. What's, what's the, the marketing term where, um, where people are, uh, seeing other people doing it. So FOMO. Well, maybe oh, yeah. FOMO, I don't know, <laughs> but it, uh, you know, what is a testimony? What, what is that called? Oh yeah. It's, um, I know what you're trying to say, um, social proof, social proof. So, I mean, basically it creates social proof, right? If, it, if so-and-so is, if, if, if it, Brad Larson is selling his business to, you know, XYZ management company, because I know Brad Larson then, and I know Brad Larson is a smart guy then I'm going to be more than likely willing to sell mine where Brad Larson sells his, right? So uh, it creates a lot of social proof. So, I mean, I understand why they're doing it. Um, you know, it, it's, it's a strategy. It's a, it's, it's a great strategy, strategy to get started. Yeah, at the end of the day, though, I think you guys are still going to have your foot in the door and on almost any type of an acquisition because um, the, I guess your real competition, honestly, is not those big acquirers. It's the... Uh, the neighbors of the company who's selling, meaning that it's just like what you mentioned, it's going to be uh, the the in-market management companies that could potentially theoretically pay more than you because of the tuck-in scenario. You know, we've had conversations about that to where uh, if anybody in San Antonio wanted to sell, I mean, I would do anything I could to try and, you know, work a deal and I would probably overpay because that means more to us because we can seriously just tuck them right into our operation and make good revenue from the very, very beginning versus if it's your uh, foothold of a market and you're trying to get very first in the door. Like when you guys first j jumped into Denver, you know, Spencer, you can probably pick this up too. Uh, it turns into kind of like uh, the transition. Okay, we're here. Now what? Now we got to start growing organically just to survive. And it's not as easy necessarily in that scenario versus like, what if you were already there in Denver and you already had 500 units and somebody's next door to you and they sell 200 units, dude, that's easy. I can no. pay, write the check. I can integrate you and we're going to continue to grow organically that way. What do you think? Yeah, we've, we've done both of those in Denver and the second is uh, far easier than getting started. Like once you make that acquisition, then you really do have to turn on your marketing machine. And for us, I think it was, it's really interesting because we had to start to learn the market and Denver, the Denver market's way different. So when you start going into these outside markets, it's like, wow, it's, it's even harder than you probably thought at the very beginning, but you're right. I mean, somebody can come in, they can pay more for that tuck in and uh, it means more to them and it just boosts their growth. And we saw that in Nashville, like we've done some tuck-ins in Nashville and that's been incredible for us and even helped our growth. Like it's, uh, it's, it's really been, been amazing to see. Let's talk a little bit about deal structure, Matt, just because, um, you know, we want to 
kind of go full circle on the acquisition game and get really deep into it. And so we, you find an interested uh, purchaser, excuse me, you're, you're the purchaser, an interested buyer, and you start talking to Turkey. Uh, you start asking what, what's your motivation to sell, kind of what do you want? And then you go into a letter of intent type phase where you are structuring a deal. Now, I know this is not a one size fits all, but what are you seeing out there right now? I mean, you, you talking cash up front, mostly you talking a little bit up front, a little bit of hold back. I mean, just kind of give me some generalities a little bit just for fun discussion on some of these uh, deal structures. Yeah, it really depends on the buyer or the seller, right? Uh, yeah, you got it backwards and I did too. It really depends on the seller, um, you know, and what their risk tolerance is and what their kind of motivation is. So uh, the way I'll explain it to them, if you're selling your business and you're willing to take on more risk, whether that's through a clawback or whether that's through seller finance, I'm willing to actually pay you more money for that business because you're, you're taking on some of the risks. Some of the, the risk is either risk of clients leaving or credit risk with me um, by you, by you, like essentially giving me a loan for some portion of your business. Now we have a lot of people that say, you know, I just want my money. Maybe they're going to invest in another deal, or maybe they want to do something else with it. And they, they want all their cash up front. Well, with no clawback. And, and so we do those types of deals, but what we do is we also discount what we would probably pay, you know, if they took on some or, or all of the risk, um, or excuse me, some of the risk, they don't take on all the risk, but if they take on the risk, uh, or they don't take on the risk, then we're going to essentially discount that all cash offer. But we do write checks to people all the time, uh, to buy their businesses. Okay. Let's talk the, the multiples, right? Let's just spend a few minutes on that because that's always the giant question. What are management companies selling for? So just give me a range of top line gross revenue multiple and also EBITDA slash profit slash seller's discretionary earnings, whatever the heft you want to call profit. You know, there's like four or five different terms floating around there and we always joke about it, but talk top line, bottom line, multiple windows. Yeah, this is, um, there, this is like uh, black magic right here, right? Like everybody's trying to think they're saying the same thing, but they generally are saying something different. So I'll just tell you the way I look at it, Brad, is I don't believe you can get a true EBITDA of a business that's, you know, call it running at a million or $2 million in revenue. I just don't. I just don't think that, I think that in most cases that owner is, either doing so much, it would be hard to replace him or her or to replace him or her, it would cost a lot of money. And then when you truly get down to an EBITDA, like an EBITDA that a big bank would recognize as like true EBITDA, then I, I just, you know, I, I just don't think that that's a, uh, that's an, that's a fair way to assess it because at the end of the day, I don't think it's, uh, it's actually not a fair value on the business. So it's not fair to the seller and shoot, we're willing to pay more than that because what we look at it is we look at it through the lens of what does it look like when we tack it on to what Everness is doing? So the re so we take a multiple of revenue because what we look at is we say, Hey, we're buying this revenue and then we are going to put it into the Evernest system. And then what are going to be our expenses now that are associated with it? So then we back into what we would, what would be what we call contribution, which is what will that essentially business once we buy it contribute back to the corporate office once we allocate all the expenses to it. And so that's how we come up with a value. Now, sometimes a seller will say, you know, I want 
three times owner earnings or five times owner earnings or whatever. And if we can pay them that, that's great, but we're not looking at it like that. We're basically taking it, putting it into our formula and saying, what are we willing to pay based on? And a lot of it's based on circumstances, right? Like, do we want to grow the business in that area? Do we want to be in that market? Are we already in that market? So, you know, the numbers might change, uh, honestly, based on that. Listen, I mean, what, what I tell everybody is start at, you know, about one times revenue. A lot of companies are selling uh, in and around that. Um, I've heard uh, companies selling for more than that uh, recently. And, but it's all about circumstances and it's all about uh, what they've built and the value that the buyer thinks that they're getting. So, you know, we can talk about what that value looks like. Uh, whether it's a brand, whether it's a person, whether it's a uh, market they want to be in, whether they're already in that market. So there's a lot of things we're looking at that, you know, that the, the, these sellers may be just in a good spot and we're willing to pay more money to, to acquire that business. Um, or maybe, you know, in some cases we pay more money because the seller has, um, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, something they've done in their past that, uh, you know, that might be something that would work really well at Everness. Like we want to acquire them as a, as a piece of that, right. Or their team's really good. Like we know their team's a great team. We know they're going to match up with what we're doing here at Everness and we want to, we want to buy them because their team's great. So at the end of the day, I mean, it, it all depends on what the buyer perceives as value and what their strategy is. And then, um, the, these multiples see, see, I don't think you can just say, Hey, all, all property management businesses are X because they are, they, they really are a different, they are worth different things to different buyers. Agreed. And so let's, let me, a couple of points I want to make, uh, on the bottom line profit stuff. I mean, you used a term I hadn't heard before or hadn't heard very much, but got to remember, we're talking about seller's discretionary earnings. So EBITDA not, is not necessarily a true reflection of profit because, when the owner's making their car payment out of the business, when the owner's paying for their insurance, when the owner's paying themselves a salary, uh, they have all these things that are coming out of the bottom line that really is stuff they can control. So I look at, or I talk about seller's discretionary earnings. Like what does the owner of that business control and how do they do it? Okay, that aside. Pest share a pest control amenity for your resident benefits program, starting at just $5 per door. You can give your residents the pest control coverage they need. PestShare will even pay for the expensive infestations, like bed bugs and cockroaches. End the debate over who pays for pest control, while PestShare turns an expense into added revenue. For more information, check out their website at pestshare.com forward slash property managers. Now, to illustrate a point effectively on what you would be willing to pay for the business. So I was talking to a colleague recently and they were looking at an acquisition in a very familiar market with them. And uh, they were talking about how the management company only charges one, two, and three, and that's it. And I'm like, whatever they want for the business, overpay for that business because you can come in sprinkle a little magic on it, add a couple fees, you know, change a few processes. And now all of a sudden you're doubling the profits because there's room to improve. 
like you guys have seen RentWorks and there's, I don't know how many more fees I can charge, you know, and get away with it, right? You guys have seen our business, but other businesses charge next to nothing and have next to no profit. And so you would take that revenue and almost pay two or three times revenue because you know you can get it back on the, on the profit as you build it in a year, two years. Totally agree. Uh, we call this buying down our multiple, right? So when we go and buy and what would be perceived as overpaying for a business, we know something that somebody else doesn't know, or we have something we of built-in value that we know we can provide uh, using that, um, that property management companies management agreements as the asset. And we can layer on, you know, something on top of that. Um, perfect example of that in our business would be, we have a very profitable, thriving maintenance business. So when we buy property management businesses, um, we, we will layer on our maintenance business. And so sometimes, you know, we can, we can see a property management business is making, you know, is, is, has X revenue, but we know when we put it into our ecosystem, it's going to be, uh, you know, more than that revenue. Good stuff. So once you get to the point, you got the deal under contract, you get to closing, you know, the integration part, we could spend all kinds of time talking about the integration. Probably the most nervous time you'd have is from the time you get the letter of intent uh, through due diligence and then getting to closing because you have to do a lot of due diligence. Now, I will say I, I, I want to brag you up a little bit because uh, you did a really good presentation a couple of years ago at our first PMM con about acquisitions. And you basically walked in with a playbook and slapped it on everybody's desk and said, this is the playbook for an acquisition. You can go to my website, go to your website, excuse me, and, and get that, or I can send it to you. And so you're very open-ended about that. But to close the loop on this conversation, because now I think we got to wake Spencer up and bring him into our conversation because <laughs> he's, he's just sitting around going, going crazy. I hope you're not going to ask him questions about integration. <laughs> no, yeah, let's please skip don't. That, that's, Marketing that's doesn't know. It. Yeah. Yeah. That's, Look, that's boring stuff. Right? I would tell integration is the boring stuff, but shoot. I, one of the things I would say about that, and then, then I'll let you talk to Spencer and he knows more about the organic than I do. Um, one of the unique things about buying a business is you get to closing and you feel like, wow, I've made it. And the first business we bought in Nashville, I remember being at a gas station. We were driving back right after closing the business. And, it, the, and I was like feeling this kind of wave of emotion of excitement that we had finally closed kind of our first outside of Birmingham business. And then the second emotion hit me. Oh, crap. Now all the work's actually begun. Panic. And so <laughs> when you get to close, it's almost like running a marathon and then saying, Oh, I've got to turn around and run all the way back. Now it's like you getting to the finish line and saying, all right, now you got to run back to the start line. That is what it feels like when you buy a business, especially if you, it was your first few times through now it, it does get easier. And as your business grows, I mean, look, uh, Spencer will laugh. I don't, I don't do anything except like, uh, sit in on these meetings and, and just listen at this point. Uh, we've got some incredibly talented people, that are closing these businesses and executing on them. But, uh, but point being integration is one of the hardest things to do. Agreed. Cause we just completed a small acquisition of a, a company locally. I mean, we're talking 40 units, so it wasn't, wasn't giant, you know, it was a cash deal. And so it was very easy to just, you know, uh, all right, we're going to pay you cash and then we get your business or we get your, your assets, which is, which are your, uh, property management agreements, right? Basically your, your owners and your tenants. And at closing, we were just kind of like, okay, we finally got here. Now it's like, we just want to take over everything. 
Like the, the owner's around, there's a holdback scenario, the owner's there to help, but it's just like, okay, we'll take over everything from here and call you if we need you. Like almost like nicely, um, please step aside and let us handle it. We'll screw some things up, but it's probably gonna be better that way. And in the due diligence, of course, in this scenario, and the sellers were great. So I'm, you know, if they're listening, no problem whatsoever. They're, they're great folks. Uh, everything was in paper, like everything. Like they did not have a stitch of electronic documents at all. And so we're talking files like uh, uh, four inches thick, right? With stuff 20 years in them. And so it was an interesting deal. We had our team have to scan everything and uh, we had to buy scanners. And <laughs> it, was, it was an interesting deal. Okay, let's transition because I got to get Spencer into this conversation because I love talking about growth and the acquisition side is a fun part, but you guys have done this in several, several markets where, okay, you've got the foothold. Now it's time to grow organically. So you're almost starting from scratch. So you have a playbook. I mean, you've done this several times over to where you're now in a market. You're now having to start from scratch. You have to put a business development person in place. You have to start creating SEO and lead generation and all that stuff. And so you've done this numerous times. So Spencer, I'd consider you the expert in this regard because a lot of folks listening, they have their, their one market, they have their, their two, three, 500 homes, and they want to get a business development manager. They are the business development manager. They're the owner doing business development. So you talking about growth on the organic scale is coming from a position of knowledge times 10. So having said that, I don't really necessarily have a starting question, but I want to hear sure. some of your comments about okay, you're in a new market. Now you have to kind of start from scratch because you've done it over and over and over. Go ahead. Yeah, great. Um, it, and it is, it is kind of starting from scratch. And, and so what Matthew and I developed, I would say probably four or five years ago, is we sat down and we were talking about marketing and we just developed uh, what we call our marketing pyramid, which has like, it builds on itself all the way up to the very top. And so the base is the foundation and that's essentially where we start. And we don't move on to the next layer of that pyramid until the base is finished, until the base is, is really concrete. And so the base are things like um, we need to get SEO worked out for this market, right? So we just went through a brand change about a year ago, a little, little bit over a year ago. And so there was a lot of SEO work that had to be done. But then even when we move into new markets, like the market doesn't know us. Google doesn't know that we're in these markets. And so we have a team that works on technical SEO for us. Um, we also take over Google reviews. So we are, we are big believers that Google reviews drive leads. And so we optimize our Google My Business pages. And then we also, like, we make it fun for our team to get Google reviews. Like, we have awards. We... Um, throw parties. We're actually sending somebody on a trip uh, who won one of our quarterly contests. And so uh, we really encourage and incentivize people to ask for Google reviews. And then from there, I would just... Let me, let me, let me interject yeah. because we've got to talk a little bit more about that because I personally agree with you on this. The Google review thing, whether you like it, hate it, I don't know. I mean, personally, it's kind of like I have a little bit of awkwardness with it because we know the reviews are cajoled, bought, stolen, blackmailed. I mean, you name it. People get reviews all different ways. We, we incentivize our team to get reviews. You guys have done this. Everybody in the industry does it, but it's so crucial because on the SEO side, when somebody pulls up your market property management and you want to be in the top fold, top three, top five organically, but then there's that magic little 
section inside of Google where the top three in that market are shown. And a lot of times it's based strictly on their Google review ranking. So it's extremely important. Whatever you can do, if you're in the campaign of organic growth, you have to get your Google reviews solid, which means you're going to beg, borrow and steal from tenants previously that left you a crappy review to working with your team to get good new reviews. But the, the maddening part, like, you know, I think we we're at a 4.6 with like a thousand reviews or something. And the maddening part is when you get a one-star review, it takes like 10 five-star reviews to negate it. That's it the most frustrating part it because uh, there's no middle ground. You know what I mean? So keep going on the, on the organic SEO growth. Well, yeah, I just want to say, you know, to your point, we used to, we used to hate Google reviews. Like we really did. Like five or six years ago, we were like, oh, it's just maddening. Here's a one-star review. Oh, here's another one-star review. How can we answer these so that when people come to our, you know, see our Google reviews that they understand that we're trying to fix it or, you know, maybe it wasn't our fault or whatever. Then we just said, forget that. We're not going to, we're not going to be timid about Google reviews anymore. We're going to ask for Google reviews. We're going to step up our service. And then we're going to ask everyone that we have interaction with for Google reviews. And then when we like to your point, Brad, when we, when we get a one-star review, what can we do to bring that up? to a four or five star, like how, how did we mess up? And then what can we do to improve that? So we're, um, you know, we're, we're also going to reach back out to those people and talk to them and see how we can improve those because it is very, very important. And it is a pride swallowing affair when you have to call (laughs) up a a crazy disgruntled tenant that left you a one star review or an applicant that left you a one star review. And you have to ask the question, you know, what can we do to make this right? I mean, what would, what would cause you to either remove this review or, you know, turn it around to a five star? What do we got to do? A lot of business owners, you know, don't necessarily want to go down that road and swallow their pride a little bit, but at the end of the day, you have to, because if you get them to do what you want, ultimately you win. Take that to heart. Let me just say this too. We actually identified that too, Brad. We were, we were like, we, the, our math was a little bit different, but we said, Hey, for every one-star review, we got to get five to make up for that one-star review. Um, and that's just to get it back to a four-star, right? So what we said was whatever we pay for a five-star review, if somebody can turn a one into a five-star, then we're willing to pay five times that amount because essentially that's like them going out separately and getting five five star reviews, right? So we actually pay anytime a one star review, and, and it does take guts, right? Because you're going to pick up the phone, you're going to listen to somebody who's really angry, who's going to wear you out over something, and then you're going to have to swallow your pride and humble yourself and say, Hey, look, I am happy to fix this and hope, hope that they then turn that one-star review into a five-star review. But we, we are willing to pay five times the amount because we agree it's, it's the equivalent. It's the same thing. I think that's yeah. a genius move. I think that's an absolute genius move. I don't want people to uh, skip over that because if you can incentivize your team to go get a five-star and you pay them XX, you know, you insert the number there, uh, and then they can turn around and remove or get removed a one-star review, you got to pay more for that. That's a, yeah, that's a, that's a great idea. I, I want people to really think about that and implement that in their own processes. You know, I was talking to one of our team members the other day and, and he was, and he, he actually won the trip that we're sending him to um, sending him on uh, for the five-star review contest. And I was asking him about it and he said, you know, I really just put myself in in their shoes. So he was dealing with a lot of applicants and he says, I've had people leave me reviews that don't even end up renting from us. And he said, so I'll give you an example. I had a five-star review the other day when I got on the phone with somebody and they asked me, you know, uh, what are your screening criteria? 
you know, I, I've been rejected, you know, a couple of times before. And so he started talking to them and kind of finding out their situation. And then he went to our website and was like, well, I'm going to read you the qualifications. And he said, really, I don't want you to, you know, pay your $50 for your application fee. I would rather you save that, uh, because you, we would probably deny you and I don't want to take that money. So, so I just want to let you know that. And, you know, we wish you all the best luck, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And he asked for a five-star review and she gave him a glowing review just because he cared enough to say, you know, save your money, like save your $50, use it for something you need, use it for a different application. And, uh, so I think that's the, the type of, um, you know, kind of ingenuity and, and kind of creative thinking that you need to, to get those five-star reviews. So Google reviews aside, I keep going on building that base of organic business development. Cause you know, we talked a couple things there, but it's a campaign. I want people to understand it's not just one or two things you got to do. Yeah. It's a campaign of one, getting good personnel, good marketing materials, good, um, basically good points of difference, having a compelling story, having a decent pricing model, uh, having Johnny on the spot, people that can answer the phone and or email, uh, mm -hmm. returning phone calls, following up. It's amazing. If you just follow up, business will fall in your lap. Asking for referrals, having a campaign to where you get referrals from realtors. So I'm just you know, spouting off the top of my head just a bunch of different things. I'm sure I'm forgetting a couple others. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think all, all of that to me, like what I was mentioning at the bottom of the pyramid is just to get our BDMs on the phone with people, like get them, people calling them. So we're doing all that. Then to your point, uh, we are doing, I mean, there's a lot of content marketing that we're putting out there because we want to be thought leaders in the market. We want to, so it is, it's multiple things upon multiple things upon multiple things. Then when they, they see a BDM in a video or they see, listen to some, one of us on our podcast, or they read an article that we just wrote, they're building, we're like, we're building this trust with them so that when they reach out and pick up that phone or they fill out that form, they feel like they already know us. And so when, uh, somebody Hunter calls them and says, Hey, I'm Hunter with Evernest. We're like, Hey, great. You know, I've, I've been listening to the podcast and I'm, you know, really excited to learn more about this, or I've got three properties over here or, or whatever the case is. I mean, it is to your point, there is a lot that goes into it and you need great people to respond and great people to, to follow up. And, uh, you know, for a lot of people, it's just the owner that's doing this. That was Matthew at the very, very beginning, which is why he thought he was always the best until I came on. And then I sold more than he did. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Uh, but yeah, but then it's just hiring the people that actually like take ownership of that role. Isn't um, it funny how the two big conversations around the industry, a lot of times are, business development managers and remote team members, right? Mm -hmm. Acquisitions and all that stuff is fun, sales, that's great stuff to talk about. But really the blocking and tackling of business development and then running the operations is a big part of what we do. Now on the business development side, uh, we always hear a lot of owners out there, they own the business and they do their own business development. Well, I, I discourage that at a certain level because I would think that they should focus on doing more things as an ownership level. And business development, honestly, is a full-time gig, no matter the size at all. I mean, if you're doing one sign-up a month or 100 sign-ups a month, I do think it's a full-time gig because you can't get to 10 if you don't commit full-time effort, right? You're at one a month because they fall in your lap. Okay, that's easy. Any owner can do that. They can go and sign them up on the kitchen table. But to create a, a steady lead flow and follow-up system, you got to have a full-time person. You have some experience in putting full-time people in place, so talk to me about the hiring fund. Yeah, I mean, it is it is fun to hire. I mean, but 
where we are right now, the, the great news is I am searching for my replacement in the sales department. So I, Matthew lured me in with marketing and then he said, oh, you got sales too. And so, but it's been fun with salespeople. Now we're hiring a director of sales who will focus, who has an experience of building a team because our vision is in 30, in three years, we're going to have 30 BDMs, um, in our markets. And, uh, yeah, so it's, it's great fun. And, um, I agree with you, Brad, like having somebody operating in a market and then expecting them to go out and win business, something's got to give between those two. And that's what we were even talking about at our offsite at the end of the year was just like the importance, the urgency to find BDMs in all of our markets, even some of our smaller tertiary markets. Matthew, anything you'd add to this? The only thing I'd say is uh, one of the things about us now is we we're starting to have a bunch of resources, right? So uh, the ability to hire multiple BDMs, the ability to do a bunch of different things from a marketing perspective. And so what I would tell people that are in the 300 to 500 house range that are just getting started is, and you mentioned this earlier, Brad, is, is get your block, get one thing good, right? Maybe that's SEO, or that is uh, getting your Google reviews up, like work really hard and focus, focus, focus on that until it becomes a habit in your organization. And that's kind of the way reason that we built that marketing pyramid like we did, because we'd always have these ideas, oh, let's run a radio ad or let's do a podcast or, or let's have a conference and bring a bunch of investors in. But at the end of the day, if we have a one, if we have a 1.2 star reviews on Google, nobody's going to call us even if we do bring conference in. So so what we said was, what's the most important thing we need to, the blocking and tackling and to build habits around? And then what's the next most important? And we just started building on that. And so that gets into, you know, focusing your resources on places where you can make a big impact that you have. And we're, you know, but, but we were 300 units at one point and we had to focus our units or excuse me, or focus our resources kind of at the bottom of that pyramid. And so don't like listen to me and Spencer and hear 30 BDMs and podcasts and think that we always had these resources. We didn't because we built this thing on a bootstrap. Um, but the reason it's been so successful is we, we allocated our focus and our money to the right places that would have the highest impact. I'll, I'll tell you, let, let me just on top of that, Matthew, what you said is so true because in 2014, what we had, we didn't have a lot of resources. We didn't have a lot of experience, but what we just are experiencing like building teams and bringing tons of leads. So what we did was we were just like, let's build out our avatars. Let's start here. Who are we selling to? Who are our clients? And then let's start creating content that helps them answer questions that answers their fears or, you know, confirms their dreams or whatever the case is something that, you know, helps them make better decisions. Um, and so we just started, and it really was all about hustle. So we kind of focused on that, focused on writing articles, and then we focused on building our five-star reviews. And, and so, yeah, Matthew's hundred percent correct. Just like starting with something and, um, and building on it and taking your time. Spencer, the last 12 months, we've been kind of, uh, reduced with all the sales. A lot of people are, instead of, uh, uh, renting their home out, they're turning on selling. You had reluctant landlords that said they threw up the white flag and said, heck, I'm going to sell it. Uh, what were some of the challenges that you had to overcome and any lessons learned in the last 12 months of dealing with a very tough business development market for rentals? And so maybe I'm speaking out of turn. Maybe you guys killed it with the rental market, but 
uh, here where we are, it was a, it was a tough go last year because everybody was selling. Sure, we captured sales, we got the one-time commissions. Okay, cool, great. But you know, we obviously want to continue on the on this level path of having a lots of homes under management. Anything that you picked up last year in the business development side from that little shift in the market that we saw with sales? Yeah, we we still saw that there were plenty of investors in our markets who were still buying properties and they were still wanting to rent those properties. So um, we turned a lot of attention to investors and um, who who wanted to buy, even though the market, you know, maybe they were paying a little bit more more than they were 18 months ago, 24 months ago. But um, I think we saw success there. Yes, there was churn happening when tenants moved out. People were like, "Man, I could sell this house." Especially, I think the um, you know, the accidental landlord, the, the one time they were really starting to think about that a lot over the past couple of years. So, um, but I think, you know, we, we added quite a few doors, um, but it still did hurt. I mean, it was a very hot market. So I would add on to that, um, thinking through the lens of marketing, I mean, we made a strategic shift Spencer, one of the things we originally created was we were focused on that accidental landlord. Remember we had this yeah. whole conversation that they're higher margin, one one house, one owner type landlord. And then we started creating a lot of content around that person, around that avatar. And we did a questions owners ask, and I, I committed to doing 365 videos in 365 days. And uh, I told Gray Hall that I would give him $500 if I didn't do it. And ironically enough, I was in Colorado about a hundred and something days in shooting. I'd already shot a hundred and something videos and I'm laying in bed in Colorado and Gray <laughs> happens to be in Colorado with me before we started uh, the Colorado market. And it's like 11 o'clock I'm beat. We've been out chasing a deal and I realized I haven't shot my video for today. So I made the intentional decision to just say, screw it. I'm not shooting it. I can't do it. And uh, so I still owe Gray $500. Gray's still waiting on that Venmo. He is. He is. I guess the, the point is, though, we've actually pivoted, Brad, to your point, to more of the, the, the what we would call the retail investor, the person that wants to buy 10 or 20 rental houses and trying to create content that is um, that attracts that person. And so that's a different person, right? Because if you think about it through the lens of a, um, you know, one house, one owner, theirs is all about risk, right? They don't want bad things to happen. So you create a lot of content to keep bad things from happening, right? Like what is their fear? Not getting rent, somebody tearing up the house. And you, so you, you know, having to do an eviction, having a dog pee all over their, you know, house, those are the, that's the type of content you would create around the, uh, the, the retail landlord though, the investor, you create different content. And one of the things they're looking for is more of a partnership relationship. How do you help me make good decisions uh, with regard to my house. And so, you know, it, the message is a lot different from the one house, one owner to the retail investor. And so we just pivoted the way we looked at it and started looking at it through the lens of the investor and started pushing out more content as it relates to that. In fact, Spencer and I just got back uh, yesterday. We drove all the way down to Jackson, Mississippi for our podcast. We're doing a, we also do a podcast called the Evernest Real Estate Investor. And we're buying a house and essentially taking, and we, we actually hired a videographer 
um, full time. This person actually yeah, works with FMS now. Yep. Uh, so we all drove down there. We we shot three hours of video at this house. We walked through it. What all are we going to do at this house? We bought this house. Uh, we're going to renovate it. You know, and we're going to go through the budget. We're going to basically do everything that a retail investor would think about to go buy a house in one of our markets. And we really think that taking somebody through the nuts and bolts of that will make it feel less scary to buy a house, renovate a house, and then manage a house. And of course, you know, we've got the brokerage business now set up to help with that. But, um, but the point is, you know, in the past we were shooting videos that said, you know, how do I evict a tenant? And now we're talking about, you know, this is how you buy a house and this is how you renovate a house. So the messaging is just a little bit different. Love it. Love that stuff that you guys talk about there with the uh, walking them through. And you guys are going to be the next, uh, should I call you the next Armando Montalongo? Of, <laughs> we're, of the, we're the new new version property brothers. Oh, okay. Good. Somebody oh, actually cool. asked me one time if Spencer was my dad. Um, so maybe oh. we're like the father-son <laughs> duo. They said, no way. He's in a lot better shape than you though, Matthew. So <laughs> your dad is in really good shape. The last thing I want to bring up and then we'll, we'll close out this episode, but uh, you guys did a recent branding change. And so I have some familiarity with that. In 2017, we changed names from Larson Properties to Rentworks. One of the best things I ever did, because at that point, people stopped looking for this clown here, the Larson guy, and they, they could care less who I was. And that was a fantastic deal. So you guys have done this now for about a year, I think. And so you went from GK Houses to Evernest, having reflective thoughts. Would you do it again? How to turn out? Any comments on how this whole rebranding went for you? One of the best decisions we ever made. Um, I a hundred percent believe that. I mean, we, and we knew that it was going to be coming. Like we were talking about it, I think in probably 2018 through 2019, but when we decided to pull the trigger, it was a lot of work, but absolutely worth, um, you know, everything that we did, all the, all the hard work that went into it. We actually all agreed on the name, but Spencer and I got into it. Uh, we were in, uh, we went and fought over what the brand would look like. Yeah. What the mark would look like. Yep. Yeah. And, um, and of course I won, right. Cause we, we did, um, we did, it was, a some, it was some pretty, it was some really won it. And of course I destroyed them. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm just right. kidding. Um, it's kind of, um, the CEO's prerogative that I got my way, but I tried to convince Spencer that I was right. And then when he wouldn't listen, I just basically put my foot down and said, this is the one we're doing. I don't know if it was the right one or not, but, um, but, I, but I'm, we're really proud of it. Uh, truthfully, Brad. And the way we looked at it too, was, GK houses really didn't tell a story, the future story of what we feel like this business is going to be in three, five, eight years from now. And we have a vision for what it looks like. And GK houses kind of pigeonholed us, especially as it relates to houses, right? Because at the end of the day, we actually manage small multifamily and we want to do some other things uh, under the same brand. And so we really said, if we're going to, now's the time it's never going to be easier than it is today to switch our brand because as we get bigger and bigger and bigger, it's going to become harder and harder and harder. And you know, you'd also be amazed. Well, you probably wouldn't be amazed because you, you experienced it too. You know, you know, the way people look at your business differently when you have like a professional brand, it is, it's not mom and pop anymore. It's a professional brand and people start to, they almost respect it more. At least I feel like they do. I agree with you on that. We saw a, a significant shift in just kind of the mindset of, of folks on that. It wasn't just me doing things or mom and pop, you know, with my name. And that was one of my biggest mistakes. So I'd never recommend anybody to name the business after themselves. 
but you know that's that's the lessons we learn when you start from your garage and and yet you, your your first address is a post office box right so that's how a lot of us start now to close this out i wanted to uh, thank you guys for coming on the episode today it's been a fantastic conversation Looking forward to seeing you guys at the Property Management Mastermind Conference in May of 2022, May 16, 17, 18, Red Rock Resort, Las Vegas. Uh, see you guys there for sure. And maybe we can get a you know round of golf in or, or something like that. Something cool. Yeah, Look we're very it. pumped to get to attend. I appreciate you uh, inviting us. Um, it, you know, you do a great job of putting on like literally one of the industry leading um, like thought leader property management conferences. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, highly suggest people go, <clears throat> I learn something every time I go and, um, highly suggest pe other people show up. Appreciate guys coming on Spencer. Thank you. Yep. Matthew, thank, thank you. you Brad. We'll see you guys around campus. Talk to you soon. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, Brad. Hey, everybody want to make sure you know about the property management mastermind conference here in 2022 going on at the Red Rock Resort in Las Vegas, May 16th through 18th. Go to pmmcon.com to learn more and sign up. Remember that commercial, where's the beef? In property management, you could say, where's the profit? You want your business to grow, but it feels like you're just spinning your wheels. We get it because we've been there. If you are ready to do something different in 2022, then head over to thepropertymanagementcoach.com to find out more about coaching programs and what they can do for you. Mention that you heard this ad on the Property Management Mastermind podcast and get $250 off any coaching program. Again, the website is thepropertymanagementcoach.com. This has been a podcast episode by propertymanagementproductions.com. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast, leave us feedback, and come back for our next episode.